0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, if you want to turn there, it will be on the screen above. As well. A key value for this church is that we are rooted in the Word of God, rooted deeply in the Word of God, I hope. And we return again and again to Holy Scripture because that is where the life of the Holy Spirit is for the children of God. And by design, probably ninety percent of the messages in this church, we're just going through a book of Scripture. We went through the Gospel of Mark, we went through First Peter. First Samuel, and now in 2 Corinthians. And it's out of our conviction that it is the Word of God and the Word of God alone by the Spirit that shapes us. And there's a good discipline for me as a preacher in going through these books because it keeps me from going around on my little, you know, pet topics and hobby horses. And we get to be formed and shaped by the Word of God. And I don't want to be using this just as a jumping off point for my own ideas and philosophies and stories. I like to imagine that Paul or Mark or Moses or Ezekiel whoever the author of the text is sitting in the front row and I, I want him to be nodding along as I preach this message and not having a face screwed up in puzzlement. That's not what I meant. We want to be listening to the voice of God, not the voice of man. And so with that in mind, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, and see what the living God has to say to us today. Hear the word of God. Paul writes, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, In purity, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit and in sincere love. In truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Through glory and dishonor. Bad report and good report. Genuine yet regarded as impostors, Known yet regarded as unknown. Dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. I don't know about you, but as we've gone through this book, and this is now the ninth of probably 18 messages, I'm so struck by Paul's passionate pursuit of relationship. Here's St. Paul, one of the greatest theologians ever gifted to the church with an enormous brain, and yet ultimately he's not obsessed with ideas and abstract theology. Here is A missionary as no missionary has ever been, traveling tirelessly throughout the Roman world. And yet, Paul is not devoted to ministry as such. Paul loves people. He loves the people of God. And as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, you can imagine the names and faces of these dear brothers and sisters in Corinth are coming before his mind's eye. These men and women and children that he sat around the table with In their tenements and in their homes, breaking bread, praying and having fellowship. Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus and Julia and Miriam and all these people of God, these dear brothers and sisters to whom Paul is writing. God is about people. God loves human beings. God's not ultimately about ideas or projects. God is about his children. And God gave his son, and he sent his spirit to form a family, a family deeply webbed together. And that's why, as God's fellow worker, despite all the troubles and stresses and anxieties and frustrations of this church, Paul can't just wash his hands of these toxic people and walk away. He can't do that. And throughout this letter, Paul is fighting for the spiritual lives of these people, and he's fighting for their relationship to be restored. And Paul's appeal to them is that they don't receive the grace of God in vain. Paul is appealing. He's seeking to move their wills, not just to inform their minds. Paul never teaches just so we have our brains stocked with lots of interesting information that we can categorize and sort and call to mind, Paul is appealing, and ultimately he is always reaching for the wills of the people to whom he's writing, that by the Spirit they would respond in joyful faith and obedience. And he does not want them to receive the grace of God in vain. And if you were to flip back to the previous chapter, 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, you can see the grace of God to which Paul is referring is this message of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling a lost and sinful world to himself. God is at work restoring broken relationships, making it possible through Jesus for people to have to be at peace with their creator. Now Paul's writing to these Corinthians. He's planted this church. He's gone there. He's preached the gospel. He's seen people respond by a miracle of the Holy Spirit in faith to Christ. And they've been born again and they've been blessed by these amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit. You've received this grace, Paul is saying. God has done amazing things for you and in you and among you. And what a shame it would be if after all you've received there would be no fruit in your life what a shame to read the word of god for hours and hours to listen to hundreds and hundreds of worship songs to sit under sermon after sermon after sermon to pray all these prayers to have all this fellowship over a lifetime And at the very end, to have nothing to show for it. For God's judgment over your life to be, what a waste. I gave them my grace and it was in vain. And what a shame it would be if we were sitting here soaking up the word of God, drinking all the grace of God, drinking all these things in. It all vanishes inside of us and in the end were just as dry as if God had never touched our lives. The grace of God always calls for a response. It always calls for a response. You know, in the ancient world, and in most cultures today, there is no such thing as a gift with no strings attached. The idea of a no-strings-attached gift is a very modern, Western way of thinking about gifts. When someone gave you a gift, the cultural expectation was that you would return that person's generosity in an appropriate way according to their relationship. Because a gift is always an invitation to take the relationship to the next level and nothing could be ruder or more selfish or more greedy than to take someone's gift and tear it open and slam the door in their face and never respond. Not just rude and greedy and selfish, deeply hurtful because gifts are always given to create and maintain social ties. That's how gifts function. And the gift of God's grace always comes with strings attached. Strings that lead back to God. I'm not talking about you pulling out your wallet and, okay, how much did this grace cost trying to pay God back? God gives his grace to create social ties, to bind us in love, close to himself, and his grace is always an invitation, a summons to go deeper in relationship to God. And when we fail to respond to that, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. And God is giving this grace right now, yeah, in this place, At 4.43 p.m., God is present offering his grace. Paul quotes Isaiah 49 to make the point that the right time is now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of God's favor. And there's this window in history in Paul's mind between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming when the door of the ark is open. It's not going to be open forever. One day it will be closed with finality. But right now the door is open and God invites us to respond in faith to the gift of his son. And of course, in our own lives, the window is even smaller. And at this moment, perhaps, you are in a season of openness to God. You're here at church. You're listening to this message and God is speaking to you. He's drawing near to you. The question is, Are we listening today? Are we receiving today? And are we going to respond today? And as I look out over all of you, I'm seeing people who are either in this moment drawing closer to God or pulling back from Him. Your hearts are becoming softer or they're becoming harder. The time is now. And the great heroes of faith, the men and women of God who lived very close to their father and who did great things for God, were the ones who responded consistently to the invitation of the Holy Spirit in the long series of nows in their life. And the people who began well but wandered away and made shipwreck of their faith. Those are the people who over a long series of nows and a long sequence of God's invitations say, not today, God, perhaps some other time I will respond to you. And they keep delaying and they keep delaying and they keep putting it off until it is too late to repent. God is present here in his grace. And he invites us, he summons us to receive and to respond. And in our passage, there is a very specific response to the grace of God that Paul is looking for. Very specific. Paul wants them to respond to God's grace by opening their hearts to Paul. And that might sound extremely egocentric, but it isn't, because a reconciled community is a sign of the power of the gospel. Our response to God's grace is lived out in a family of brothers and sisters. And when we come and gather as a church, it's not like going to the public service hall. We're all there with our individual business and our own number going to our own window, and then we leave. We're gathered here as a family, having fellowship, singing together, listening to the Word together, and gathering at the table of God to break bread in the sacrament together. And when we live as a true community of love and reconciliation, that's how we know that the Holy Spirit is present. When through His power we are overcoming our deep-seated natural selfishness and self-obsession, when we set aside our grudges and our differences and our offenses, and we embrace one another with open open hearts and open arms, that's how we know the Spirit of God is present. And if that is not happening... It doesn't matter if we are prophesying like crazy or being slain in the Spirit or speaking in tongues or even healing the sick or raising the dead. It's all just a clashing gong and a noisy symbol, if the Spirit of God is not drawing us closer together in love as God's children. And Paul has been determined at great cost that on his own end, He's living at peace with everybody. That there's no barrier to relationship on Paul's end. We live in such a way, he writes, that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. How many ministries have imploded because of some hidden sin, some terrible lack of integrity? I feel weary, as it seems, every other week. There's some ministry collapsing because of this. And what a shame for someone to exhaust themselves in serving God only for it all to be not just nothing, but worse than nothing, where they've done terrible damage to the kingdom of God. Across the street from us, on Titian Tabidze Street, there are a series of little garages. And this week, someone brought in a big pile of sand and some stones, and they were like building a wall. I don't know if they are trying to make some kind of shed or a little living space or something inside one of these garages. And every day I'd go out there, and the wall would be a little bit higher. And then yesterday morning, I went outside and there was a different crew of people there and they all had like picks and hammers and they were taking the whole wall apart. I have no idea what happened. This is my imagination as an expat trying to fill in the story. And imagine that's not just the work of a week, but your entire life's work. You've labored and sweated to build something for God and in the end, it all has to be taken apart. And here's Paul passionately defending his ministry. Why is Paul so passionate about defending his ministry? Why doesn't he just quietly leave it to God to defend himself? Here's the reason. Paul is very worried, not about his own reputation. He's used to that being torn to shreds. Paul is worried about this church in Corinth. And his fear is that if they reject Paul's ministry, very likely they will end up rejecting Paul's message, the gospel of Jesus. Imagine you go out for lunch with your friend, and your friend excuses themselves to go use the washroom, and they come back with a disgusted look on their face because they saw one of the waiters in there, your waiter, your server, and he used the toilet, and he didn't wash his hands. And, well, that would, that would put you off your food, wouldn't it? No matter how good the chef was, you would you know what, we're going to find somewhere else to eat if we even have an appetite left. You know, Paul is the waiter bringing the dishes from God's kitchen. And Paul would be devastated if doubts about his personal hygiene, about his personal integrity, were keeping people away from the table of God's grace. And that's why Paul can't just be silent and let this church go down into a spiral. He has to respond and defend Not his ministry, but Christ's ministry through him. And Paul has been determined in his own life not to receive the grace of God in vain, to respond with his whole heart to the gift and the call of God in his life. Here's what he wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is definitely not passive in just receiving the grace of God. The grace of God is powerfully energizing Paul and sending him forth on mission for Jesus and with Jesus. And then in our passage, Paul launches into a passionate defense of his life and ministry. And for sheer eloquence, there are few passages in Paul that can equal what he has here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. A torrent of words comes from Paul. By my count, Paul lists 27 statements about himself. I'm not going to attempt a 27-point sermon, but Paul launches into this defense with a detailed list of what is actually true about his ministry. Let's break this down quickly. Verses 4 and 5, he talks about the difficulties that he endured. Here's how the New Living Translation has it. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, been put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights. And gone without food. You now, being an ambassador of Jesus is not a cushy assignment where you get whisked in air conditioned limousines from one cocktail party to another. Here's Paul announcing Jesus is Lord. And the powers of this world and the world below are enraged by this announcement and they resist with all the violence of which they are capable. And therefore, Paul's ministry of faithfulness to Jesus is one brutal hardship after another. His opponents view this as a sign that God was not with them because they just had this smooth escalator ride of ministry power. And Paul's saying, no, this is a demonstration that I am faithful and that I'm following Jesus in my ministry. And then he turns to his own personal ethics. Verse 6, We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us, and by our sincere love. Somehow all this terrible suffering that Paul has endured has not made him hard and angry and bitter. He's gone through severe colds and bitter winds and violent storms, and all these things have actually produced the sweet fruit of the Spirit in Paul's life and ministry. And so he can point to himself with total humility and utter integrity and say, I am living this out myself. I'm not telling you to do stuff that I'm not doing in my own life. Verse 7, we faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for for defense. Paul is not just enduring suffering, standing in one position and bracing himself against the attacks of the evil one. He is actively going out and serving God despite all the obstacles. Paul is undaunted. And he's not saying this to boast in his own strength. Nothing can take me down. He's operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, sustained by the grace of God. And somehow, Paul goes on. Beaten, imprisoned, betrayed, Paul goes on by the sustaining power of God's grace. We serve God, he says, whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. We're honest. They call us imposters. We're ignored even though we are well-known. Nothing can knock Paul Off track. He can't be pushed off by slander. He can't be tempted off by flattery. Paul's eyes are fixed on Christ and what Christ wants for him, and he keeps on going. We live close to death, he says, but we are still alive. We've been beaten, but we've not yet been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Paul's ministry is one long series of paradoxes. His life seems to be a total contradiction. Death and life, weakness and power, shame and glory and the reason is that paul is being conformed to the image of christ and both good friday and easter sunday are living realities in paul's life as outwardly he's wasting away yet inwardly he's being renewed Day by day, living this cross shaped, resurrection powered life by the Spirit of God. In his commentary, Paul Barnett says The gospel demands that its bearer embody the central truths of death and resurrection. The gospel demands that its bearer embody the central truths of death and resurrection. We're not just called to tell the story. We're called to live the story ourselves. Not just to hand out pamphlets, but to be a demonstration model of the gospel of Jesus. Small scale, it's true, and yet, by the Spirit, a genuine reflection of the life of Jesus. And for Paul, this life can only be lived out in human relationships, not by himself, in human relationships. That's why it's so costly. All this suffering and all these terrible things that Paul's enduring are born out of relationship with people to whom he wants to bear the grace of God. This is not Paul in a cell by himself on some deserted island having some kind of heroic spiritual journey towards God. This is Paul with people suffering. And if you want to be in deep human relationships, you must be vulnerable. You must expose yourself and be in a position of weakness. And you cannot love people from a position of safe reserve. With the walls of your heart up, sealed off from the ability of anyone to hurt you. You can't do that. And the gospel shows us that the love of God expressed itself in total weakness and vulnerability on the cross. Just imagine if the Father's last words to the Son before He went to be incarnated of the Virgin Mary, His last words were, whatever you do, Be careful not to make friends with these people. Imagine if God said that to Jesus. That would not be love, and Jesus would have completely failed in his mission. When Jesus became human, he put himself in a position where he could be slandered, rejected, abandoned, Betrayed, yes, abused, tortured, and executed. God did not love us from a position of safe reserve, with the walls of his heart sealed off so we could not hurt him. He gave his son to be nailed to the cross. And when Jesus called Paul to be his apostle to the nations, he showed Paul the things that he would have to suffer if he was going to faithfully represent the gospel. Paul did not pursue suffering for its own sake in some kind of sick, masochistic desire to experience pain. Paul suffered out of obedience to Jesus and out of love for real people. And it's remarkable, in Paul's letters, there are 70 or 80 people named in his letters as people with whom he did a ministry, people he deeply loved and had profound connections with. And here's Paul, this genius, this ministry machine, and yet he's enmeshed in this thick web of human relationships, family relationships created by the Spirit of God. People, I should add, that Paul would have been appalled to be seen with during his days as a Pharisee, and yet, through Jesus, he's sitting at their table. And Paul has opened his heart wide to these people, to this group of house churches in Corinth, these faces that he's imagining, these names that he's remembering— He has opened his heart wide, not from a position of safe reserve. And Paul's been terribly hurt, and he's been horribly misunderstood, and people are saying all kinds of garbage about them in Corinth. And yet, it's amazing to me in this letter, Paul doesn't withdraw into his protective shell. He doesn't cut these people off as toxic. He appeals to them to respond by opening their own hearts in return. And notice, Paul is not demanding from a position of apostolic power. He is appealing as a father from a position of Christ-like weakness and vulnerability. You know, the church of God is the laboratory of the gospel. And this message of reconciliation is no mere theory. It has to be lived out in our actual relationships in this community. And if we fail to open our hearts to our brothers and sisters, I think the Spirit of God is saying, you're receiving my grace in vain. As 1 John tells us, we can't say, oh, I love God if we hate God's other children, if we have no desire to be close with Him. When we truly experience the love of God, that enlarges our hearts and makes us Gregarious to take in other people. And that is what the Spirit of God is calling us to as a community. Of course, we have our challenges. This is it's a strange little church. And we have all these, you know, ethnic barriers between us, people with whom we seem to have very little in common much like Paul's churches, I suppose. And it's easy to gravitate towards a few safe relationships, isn't it? Very easy in this church, we're not a big church, to worship every Sunday with people, and you don't even know their names. What a shame that is. I feel that in my own heart, too. And God is not demanding of you today you embrace beatings, imprisonments, riots, and calamities, unless that's in your life already, but he is inviting you to respond to the grace of God right now in this present moment to open your heart towards your brothers and sisters as God's new society of the cross and the empty tomb. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org. Thanks for listening.